This morning, we're going to pick up right where we left off, and we're going to learn something very important this morning in Scripture. And there's a, there's a term that I hope that you'll, you'll not hear it wrong, because it's important for us to hear it. Uh, there's a, there's an, a main objective. You know, we have our own statements at the end of, of every church service that we go through, and we talk about what our purpose is and our primary strategy, and, and it, gives us, it gives us an understanding of, of parameters of what we're supposed to be trying to accomplish, right? And there's a, there's a podcast I follow, I listen to. I really enjoy um, the, the magnitude of, of all that gets done and in, that in this, this one individual and all the different types of people that he has on his show. But one of the things talks about a program where, where there's a communities across the land that have embraced this model of building beds for kids who don't have beds. And, and it's kind of this really cool thing. He started it up, and all of a sudden he goes from community to community, and they start chapters, and, and they build beds. Well, about the time, you know, you start to do something like this, then people will, chapters will be formed, and, and they'll have different interest groups that will be like, hey, we want to start a chapter here, and it might be wedded to a church, or it might be wedded to a community group of some type. And then something will happen where the group will say something like, man, you know it would be really good that would go with this bed? And then somebody will say, a teddy bear. It's a bed, right? Or pillows or sheets or mattresses. And, and the, the guy who starts it, he says, I have to stop him right about there and say, no, no, no. Beds. We make beds. That's what this chapter is going to be about, even though you're organizing the chapter. It's going to be just about this one thing. And he says, what happens is, is that organizations start getting off of the main thing and they get what's called mission drift. Mission drift is when you have a mission and you start to slide away from what it's supposed to be doing and you forget what you, and by the time you get done with it, you're way off over here and you haven't accomplished your mission, but man, you've done a lot of other things. And churches are bad about this. Jesus is going to show us in the passage this morning that mission drift cannot be part of his mission. It cannot be part of his goal. But he's going to also highlight that the other side things that are happening in the world are important to him. And he is beautiful and elegant at the way that he does this because he, he doesn't allow the mission drift to take place, but he also highlights the importance of the crisis that's happening. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. So I want you to turn with me in your Bibles to John, John chapter 11. We were right here last week. We picked up um, verse 1, and we got all the way to verse 16. So we're going to start at verse number 17. So when you find verse number 17 in John chapter 11, if you would stand in honor of God's word. This is a longer reading today. We go all the way to verse number 37, so bear with me. It says, so when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb, now he's speaking of Lazarus here, four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles away, and many of the Jews had joined the women around Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. Then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him. But Mary was sitting in the house, now Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who has come into the world. And when she had 
said these things, she went her way and secretly called Mary, her sister, saying, the teacher has come and is calling for you. As soon as she heard that she arose quickly and came to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the town, but was in the place where Martha met him. Then the Jews who were with her in the house and comforting her, when they saw that Mary rose up quickly and went out, followed her, saying, she is going to the tomb to weep there. Then when Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him? And some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you that as we come to Scripture, we are challenged by the very truth, the very rhythm and the routine of life, the very difficult part. Lord, where we, we are faced with the, the mortality in each and every one of our own lives and the lives of those around us. I pray, Lord, that as we look to Scripture, that you would speak plainly into our ears and our hearts and our minds, that your word would be declared in such a way that we would walk out of here saying that you are king, and that your mission is the mission. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. You'll notice a handful of questions that are just, and statements that just bounce off the page, and it's really interesting. And if you hadn't noticed, you look at verse number 21, and then you look again at verse number um, 32, you see a very similar statement from the two different sisters. And this is a prevailing, prevailing thought. This is one of those things that, that we deal with all the time in church life. We, we wrestle with this difficulty. Because the question is, is, and the, the comment that people are wrestling with, and, and I realize I'm going to go back and I'm going to get to verse 17 and we're going to go through the whole thing like we typically do, but before I do that, I'd like to pose this to you. The question is, it's just what the disciples asked when Jesus was on the boat. It's just what we ask him when we're going through our own crises, and it, and it is, Lord, do you not care about what's going on in our lives? And this one sticking point is a reason why so many people will choose to, to feel as though God is distant and then though God is away, that Jesus is not caring or concerned, and they will wander off from church and they will leave it behind because they don't understand the magnitude of what Jesus is and what he's doing and what he is about, and they don't see the whole picture, and as a result, they've been given a partial truth about the gospel. The gospel is, is that Jesus will save us from our sins, but he will also reign over our lives, that we have a king that we can follow and that we can trust, and that no matter what occurs in life, that we will hold on to him, and that he will guide us through the every moment. But this question, Lord, if you had been here, where are you, God? Where are you when I need you? Why weren't you here? And I think what you'll find is that the story is quite the opposite. Verse number 17 now. It says, so when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days. That is a long time in the terminology of, of understanding life and death. I don't know, you know, without becoming too graphic here, but I, I suggest to you that there's a measure in understanding that Jesus came when he was supposed to come so that there would have been no hope in the audience that anything miraculous were coming. But don't you love that picture that, that he comes after the fact when people think that, that anything can be done? 
and yet he's still capable of doing something. And this is something that you need to know about Jesus in this gospel that we understand is that it doesn't matter. And point number one, if you're following along and, and writing notes this morning, is that no situation is too far gone for Jesus. You may think that things are completely out of, outside of your control, and, and I'm not suggesting that he will say yes to all of our requests because he doesn't work for us. We work for him. But what I will say is, is that it doesn't matter how bad off you think the thing is. Jesus is still capable of coming in even several days after you wanted him. And he can still rule over the moment in a way that will absolutely unravel your misconceptions about him. It goes on to say, now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles away. Remember that the chief concern of the disciples was that if Jesus came back here, that he'd be in danger. Now, I, I will suggest that if you continue to read the story, you'll see that some of that intrinsic truth is possible and it is real because Jesus is, in fact, in danger all the way up into the fact where he is in most danger. But in this moment, you see that he is not concerned at all with any of that. He's at Bethany. He's near Jerusalem. And it says that there is a cluster of people that have gathered. It says many Jews had come to comfort one of the sisters. Now, Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles away, and many of the Jews had joined the women around Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. What a beautiful picture. What a beautiful picture of a faith community. Isn't that something that we should lean in to do wherever we can, whenever we can, when people are hurting? We as a faith community should be like this faith community and we should gather around people that are hurting and we should help them as much as is possible. You know, one of the chief things that I tell people when people don't know what to do is go to people and tell them you don't know what to do, but you're there. You won't have the right words or the perfect answers. You won't have the magic thing. And sometimes I think you would prefer to understand that if you just show up and are silent, that means something. Your card means something. Your flowers mean something. Your presence means something. Be present. And there's this picture of this community that's clustered around these two sisters that are hurting. But it, you know like I know, while it's helpful, it doesn't always fix the hurt, does it? We need others when we're hurting, but it doesn't always make it perfect or right, does it? I tell people this frequently, and, and oftentimes if you, if you listen to me when I talk at funerals and stuff, oftentimes I'll tell people, or memorial service, I'll tell people that grief is kind of like an unwanted house guest. Does anybody in here, and, and I, I realize I'm about to transition to something that might seem a little comical, it's okay, okay? It's not meant to demean or, or lighten the effect of grief, but the reality is, is that most of you here get a knock at the door and it's somebody that you know and they've got a bag in their hand and they're expecting to stay with you, but you're not quite yet ready. You did not know they were coming. How many of you are like, you're looking at your spouse or your family and you're like, I'm so excited that this person that I, I kind of know is coming to stay with us for the next three days. It's okay. You, I mean, some of you would be like, I need, give me a moment. You close the door. You look at your spouse and say, clean something. Right? You're like, what? Anything. Right? I mean, for, you know, if you come to my house early in the morning on a day off, I might be, I'm going to have to get dressed. And I'd close the door, you know. I'm not yet ready to receive. That's the statement I use at my door. Um, but the magnitude of this truth is, is, is that grief is like an unwanted house guest. 
that shows up, has no intention of leaving until it wants to leave, and it shows back up whenever it wants to. And it's real uncomfortable. And it's, it's unruly in its expectation, and it's un, uncaring in what it does to you or what it puts you out. And it doesn't matter how comforting the people around you are sometimes, it's still present. And it's okay that it's present. It's okay to be hurting for a prolonged period of time, even if people have told you you should be over it. It's okay. It says in 20 verse, in verse 20 that Martha, as soon as she, she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him. I love the expression here. It's not that she saw him and she wasn't waiting for Jesus, that it's like she, she heard that he's coming and she, she has to depart from where she's at because she knows that the, that the very thing she needs, the very person she needs to see is worth the extra effort to go out and do the thing. She went and met him. It says, but Mary was sitting at the house. You always see these two sisters always seem to be doing things opposite. There's this whole story there and, and, and serving and doing and, and acts of service and all this stuff, but we'll talk about that on another day. Verse 21 says, now Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. I believe that statement is accurate. I believe that statement is 100% accurate because I believe that Jesus, who was present at creation, when he speaks all of existence into existence, that he is the signature and the timestamp on all of life that he could, he could have prohibited Lazarus' death. I believe this statement is accurate. But underneath it is this this hurt, you hear this, this, this veiled sort of feeling or emotion that I feel like is wedded to the passage and I could be completely off base. One day I may learn that I am. But the sensation for me is, is, the, is the groaning within each and every one of us when we're going through the hard things in life and we're like, where are you at? And I, I firmly believe that if you have not gone through that, God bless you. Because most of us whether we would be bold enough to admit it even in church, we have gone through it where we're like, where are you? Don't you see everything is falling apart? Don't you know that this situation is out of control? Don't you understand how much pain I'm in? Don't you grasp the magnitude of what life has brought to my door? Don't you understand? Where are you? If you had been here. It says, but even now, her, her response immediately corrects, just like ours oftentimes does when we, when we come to God with such statements and we're like, we don't understand. We immediately, we go back to what we've been taught. And this is one of the importances of being raised in, in religious settings and being, being brought to church and learning what the Bible has to say and studying it for yourself. You will immediately go back to your, you will be disciplined to go back to saying, but the truth about the scripture says this about you and I will choose to believe it because I will trust God even when my world is falling apart. I will trust God even when it doesn't make sense. I will trust God, and she just leans right back into what she knows about Jesus to be true, and she says, but even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. 
And this is one of those things that I wonder about people who have no religious upbringing, have no knowledge of the Bible, have no personal study, have no intimate relationship with Jesus, that they have nothing to go back on. When they have misunderstandings about who he is and what he is, they will lean on whatever the world has told them and whatever meme has, has comforted them, and they will say the wrong things about him. Instead of saying, we know that you have all authority and whatever you ask, it will be done. They will not have this to lean on. And when lost people are hurting, oftentimes it's hard to console them because they have no foundation by which to, to hold them. And so you want to know why it's important to study this? And you want to know why it's important to come and be part of regular worship? And you want to know why it's important to, to intrinsically have your kids in church and be in church and then have their kids in church? You know, a great statement that I was taught a long time ago, and this is something that I'm just going to step one step out of the conversation here. You want to make the right kind of church for your community? Help me reach your children's children. Stop being worried about you and what you like or don't like and look past your children and what they like and don't like and start looking at your children's children and saying, our target is not now or not the next step but the one after it. Help me reach your children's children. And you begin to see this picture where you begin to understand the foundational truths that she has in her life and the understanding of the relationship she has with Jesus is there and immediately boomerangs from, Lord, if you had been here too, I know. That statement, I know. Whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. What a statement. I mean, Jesus doesn't even... He doesn't even take this weird kind of moment to decide or weigh it out. He just knows what he's here to offer. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. This is a phenomenal statement, by the way. In the world that Jesus lived in, there were actually two religious groups that had warring factions about their philosophy. Imagine that, religious groups that don't agree about stuff. I can't imagine a world where groups disagree about things. I mean, it is foreign concept to us, isn't it? Where there would be more than one group of people that believe differently about different things. For her to say that she believes in the resurrection is to say that she's part of a group that believes something is beyond this life. There are many people in the Hebrew culture that are on the other side of that coin that just believe that when they die, it's over. But she says, I know. And then she says that he will rise again. So she says, I know that whatever you ask, and I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And then Jesus begins just to teach her something that is shocking. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. I, this powerful expression of resurrection is something that when you see in Scripture, you can't help yourself but look a little deeper. I, I want you to know the first time that I really see an anticipation of resurrection in Scripture, I, I was looking at the story of Abraham and Isaac and I'm in a, a Hebrew exegesis class and we're doing all this tearing down and I had to pick something to write on and, I, and I'm looking at this passage and it's so interesting because Abraham and Isaac, you know, you know the story. God tells him, and before this point, Abraham has been completely unable to just obey God. He's trying to figure out how to do God's instruction plus his wisdom and trying to make him work and it's not working. So God tells him, hey, go sacrifice your son. And he says to his son, let's go. He begins to split wood and they go up the side of the mountain. And his son says, you know, where's the sacrifice? And Abraham looks at him and says, God will provide. 
Before that, when he looks at his servants and he tells them to wait, he says something that I believe is telling of the, the first anticipation of resurrection in all of the scripture. Because he looks right at his, at his, at his servants that so he makes wait. He says, we will return. He doesn't say, I will return. He says, we will return. And that either means that he believes that God is going to, to surplant, surplace, I mean, replace his son as, with something for sacrifice, or that he will offer his son as a sacrifice and God will resurrect him, or that he's outside of his mind and he's lying. And I believe it's the resurrection piece personally. I hope you begin to see that this story is a story about resurrection. This story, this whole story is a story about resurrection. But you know what you have to have in order to have resurrection? It's unfortunate but true. You have to have death. And Jesus is the author of life in such a way that he knows exactly how long you'll live. He knows exactly the moment that you will no longer be here. And he knows what's going on in your eternity. And he is waiting for you to respond to him even now. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. Do you believe in Jesus? He has clearly stated that if you want life beyond this life, that you need to believe in him. Some people believe it's about good works. You ask people what's going to happen to them when they die. They say, I hope I go to heaven. I want to say, what is this language hope? Hope is not a plan. My plan is to believe in Jesus. Jesus has promised me eternal life. If I believe in him, then I will have resurrection power in my death. Only then. People say, well, I've done more good than bad, and I, I'm keeping track, and I want to say, you couldn't possibly do any good that would measure up to the bad you've already done. There's so much separation between us and God without Jesus. We're hopeless and helpless. That's why when he says, I am the resurrection, we cling to him. He goes, and whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She says to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God who has come into the world. Point number two, if you're taking notes, is Jesus declares the truth plainly. He is very clear about the matter. Believe in me. I am the resurrection and I am the life. Whoever believes will live. I think that there's, there's a, a lot of misconceptions here about what it means. You know what I'm talking about when I say there's misconception about what it means? Have you ever been into a neighborhood or into a part of the, of the world that's maybe unfamiliar to you and you see this sign? It stands up on the, the edge of the intersection where you're at and it's 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 a square, but it's not, it's, it's more of a diamond because it's set on a point, right? It says dead end. Is there anybody in here that's ever turned down that road hoping that sign was wrong? Most of us at some point have encountered somebody that's just brazen enough to say, surely not. When I look down there, there's more than I can see. I've got to turn down this road and find out. Clearly, whoever put that sign there is completely ignorant to the reality of the truth. Robert Fulgham writes a story where he talks about living in a cul-de-sac with this sign prominently placed, dead end. And he says people will turn onto his road and they will come and they'll set their headlights right on his window in his living room and they'll shine into his home as though, yep, the sign was right. There's this moment where Jesus is declaring about this. I think people, they have seen him and his declaration and they have chosen to drive down a path and decide whether or not it's real or not. And he has told us all we need to know. 
He speaks plainly to the truth. And yet we question it all the while. She declares it as well. Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who has come into the world. Verse 28. When she had said these things, she went her way and secretly called Mary, her sister, saying, the teacher has come and is calling for you. As soon as she heard that, she arose quickly and came to him. What a powerful exchange. I know it seems so subtly, you know, just woven in there. And you're just like, yeah, of course, Mary and Martha. And, and the story is, is that Jesus is there. One of them goes to him and the other one is called by him. And I want you to understand this picture. You may be in this place because you decided to get up out of your bed, get dressed and come to Jesus. Or you might be in here because somebody else is reaching out into your life and saying, come with me, Jesus is calling to you. And either way, you're both welcome. The truth is, is that there's a lot of people in this world that are just actively choosing to run to Jesus. And there's a lot of people out there that need encouraged by their siblings or by their loved ones or by their friends and other people to say, come on, Jesus is calling you. And the invitation is so powerful. It's just so subtle. It's like, you need to come. Jesus is inviting you. You see, when you get invited to church, the one thing that I want you to stop doing is inviting people to come to church. And you're like, what are you talking about? Of course I want you to invite people to come to church, but not the way you think. Start inviting people to know your Savior. And if the right place to do that is a church, amen. We have for too long invited people to be part of our club instead of part of our faith. And as a result, they get disappointed in other people. But if they are, if they are entangled with the relationship of coming to Jesus because we go to them and say, we have gone to Jesus and we recognize that he's the Christ and now we're inviting you to come see him and then people will come to him. Hey, trust me, there are flaws in the system. There are imperfections in the people. The people here will let you down. They are wonderful people, but they're not perfect. But there is one thing that we possess that we each and every one share that is perfection. He is Jesus, and I invite you not into the connect group to love our group, but to love our Jesus. Not into this worship service to love the preaching or this music, but to love Jesus. Not into this fellowship atmosphere that we create or into the Wednesday night things to get the kids excited or into our prayer meeting to be part of the thing other than to know Jesus. We are reaching people for Jesus. We are discipling people for Jesus. We are sending people for Jesus. We are doing these things. Mission drift is when we start to do things that don't coincide with us coming to Jesus. Early on when I talked about mission drift, what I told you is, is that we get to this part where we have this problem where we start doing things because they make us happy instead of serving the purpose. In a couple of weeks, pumpkin patch will happen. Why are we doing a pumpkin patch? to raise money for missions, to reach out to our community. We are reaching and sending in that moment. Why are we having a potluck today? Because we're talking about those who have been sent and inviting other people to be sent. Why are we sending people? To reach other people so that we can disciple them so that they might be sent. All of these things serve each other's purpose. We're coming to the thing. What is our purpose? What is our primary strategy? What is the objective? Let us never drift from it. Jesus is in this moment where she has been, he is being, being put right into a hard situation where there are impossible questions to be answered and one sister looks at another sister and says, come to Jesus, he's calling for you. And in the moment, what we have here is this powerful, powerful picture. It says, 
As soon as she heard that, she arose quickly and came to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the town, but was in the place where Martha met him. Then the Jews who were with her in the house and comforting her, when they saw that Mary rose up quickly and went out, followed her saying, she is going to the tomb to weep there. Then Mary came where Jesus was and saw him. She fell down at his feet. The posture is right. Worship the king. The posture is beautiful. Fall down before Jesus. Understand he is sovereign. Know he is royalty. Understand he is king. And immediately the question, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Jesus' beautiful execution of what comes next. It says, therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? The beginning of this emotion that you begin to see in Jesus, it is a clear example that not only do we understand who he is and what he is, but that he understands who we are and what we're going through. The, the shortest passage in all of scripture is Jesus wept. It's coming up, but I want you to see it. He is moved with this, with this emotion inside of him. He has a mission in front of him. He has to accomplish it. There is no other hope for you other than he come and do the whole thing by offering himself as a sacrifice for your sins. He could get completely sidetracked and derailed. He could run rampant, fixing all of the small problems in the world. He could do even the big ones and the great big crises that are in your life. But if he doesn't make his appointment with the cross, you're hopeless and I'm hopeless and none of it, none of it matters. And so he has to stay on task with where he's going. So he's moved though, and he is, he is consistently and intrinsically still concerned with you. And that's what's so beautiful about this passage. He knows that he has to be where he has to be when he has to be there. And yet he has time for this moment for us to see him be, be pained by their, by their hurting. You ever wondered where he's at? Where he's at in the moments when you're hurting? He's right here, groaning in his spirit, being troubled by your trouble. They said to him, Lord, come and see. And then the weeping. Jesus wept. These, these several letters stitched together to make these two words, and I don't think that you fully get it. I one time had a lady describe her grief, and she, precious, and she had lost most of her family, and it's one of the prices we pay with a long life, I suppose, is, is that you outlive your, your friends and your family members. And she began to say that she had felt like she had cried the entire ocean full. I don't, I don't know about you, but Jesus' humanity is never more on display than in this moment when he is, he is he's weeping. And I don't know about you, but I know many of the men that I have encountered in my life, they would they would be very cautious about ever letting anybody into a place where they would see this much emotion. And I think it's important, and the Bible makes it very clear for us to see his pain, that he is intrinsically, elegantly still concerned with Lazarus and with Mary and Martha who remain. He has not neglected you. He is not distant from you. He is right in the midst, troubled 
and hurting with you because he's a king that loves you and cares about you. It's part of what makes him so magnificent and why we need to be just like the, the sister that says, come, Jesus is calling out to you. Did you realize Jesus might be calling out to you in your time of hurt? He might be calling for you even now. There's, it goes on and, and there's just this, this, this dialogue that unfolds after his emotion is poured out. It says, then the Jews said, see how he loved him. And some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? Point number three. And the final point for today. The whole world may have the same opinion about Jesus and be wrong. It doesn't matter how many people say something that's wrong about God or about Jesus. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. I'll never forget this, this key moment in my, own, in my own story, just being a mission team leader and one of the team members is just, he's just broken. We're, we're at South Padre Island and there's just this, this unbridled debauchery in every angle we're looking at. And he is just rattled. And worship is powerful. You want to talk about a group of people that needs to worship Jesus? Go out and witness to people on the beach during spring break when everybody's there for wild debauchery and try to tell them about Jesus and be exhausted by the end of the day looking at how people are throwing their lives away and hoping they will just hear you talk about Jesus and be changed even a little bit. And then come back to the worship that we had each and every night. And the worship was so profound. People singing from the very depths of their soul, crying out to God because they needed to be filled up because they had been poured out. And at the end of it, the whole team is up and ready to go except for one guy. And he just sits there. And I finally have to tell the team, and it, because of a series of circumstances, I was the only team leader that year. I sent everybody out. I said, hey, go hang out outside. I'm going to check on, on our guy here. I said, I'll be right back out. Um, we were just queuing up for the next assignment. And I go and sit down next to him, and he's just, I mean, he's just bleeding out at the eyes, just, just crying, just, just completely destroyed. Completely destroyed. And I'm like, what is wrong? And he's just like, look, we saw what we saw today, and we're here together. And we're crying out and we're singing these songs and all I can think is, is that God is losing this fight. And he goes, and in that moment, the Holy Spirit began to speak to me and he says, I don't lose. And he began to just break me and he says, and then the tears came and then I couldn't stop. Because here's the truth that we learned in that moment. If no one in this room ever decided to follow Jesus, if no one in any church across America ever decided to pledge allegiance to him or run to him and give their sins to him, if no one ever decided to, to accept his sacrifice in place of their own, he still wins. And yet, many of us have decided to follow him and he still wins. Many of us have come to him because he is the resurrection and he still wins. Whether all of us or none of us, he still wins. Because that's what a king is. He's sovereign. He needs not our participation in order to succeed. And his mission in his, is his mission. And the whole world cries out. And they tell us things like, the Bible has it wrong. The Bible has described things in a way that is inconsistent with our culture. Well, let me tell you the truth. 
It doesn't matter how many voices say that. The Bible is truth because it's his word, not ours. And we don't get to manipulate it and change it. If you want to know how to change your life, stop trying to change this and start asking this what to do to change you. You can't come to this and tell it what to do. It tells you what to do. He's king. It doesn't matter how many people doesn't matter what the news says. It doesn't matter what your friends say. It doesn't matter what the crowd of people who are hurting with you in the midst of the tragedies say. What matters is what Jesus says. Next week, we're going to see what he has to say on the matter. But right now, the offer and the invitation before you is simple. Are you going to lean on what you know? Are you going to be clouded? by your circumstance? Are you going to hear the world's volume of information and try to change this? Or are you going to accept this for exactly what it is? Because it's enough. And what he offers is enough. Because God doesn't lose. Won't it be something when all those people who rose up and said that this isn't accurate, when they're standing on the outside looking in, and they'll say, but there were lots and lots and lots of us that said it was wrong. And the king will say, it doesn't matter what you said. Which side will you be on in the end? I hope that you'll come with me. I'm going with Jesus. Even though sometimes it doesn't seem like I understand. I lean on everything that this has taught me. Won't you do the same? The invitation is for you to lean on this today. Would you stand with me? I know the musicians are going to come. I'm going to pray and give you an opportunity. You're welcome to come. I know that there's lots of reasons why we might want and desire to cry out to God. And the altar is here for you. And we'll give you an opportunity just to cry out to God, to lean on him and all of his truth. Lord God, we thank you that you have given us an opportunity. Lord, running to you, some of us being encouraged to be here by others. I pray, Lord, that we would, we would focus on what your word says and not what anything else says. That we would set the high standard of our belief on you. Because we know you are right here when we hurt. And we know that you are right here when things are falling apart. And we know that you are right near us. But we also know that you don't, you don't have to drift from your mission. We won't ask you to anymore. Lord, let us hold on to you and let us be about you. That everything we do would be about serving and lining up with you and your mission. We ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.